My title for us this morning is this, The Amazing Doctrine of the Love of God. The Amazing Doctrine of the Love of God. This morning, as I mentioned already, we are in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. John isn't going to steer us this morning into a conversation or lesson on a theological topic that we may or may not have heard of before. One that we may or may not be familiar with. No, this morning, John is steering us into a lesson and conversation around the amazing doctrine of the love of God. I have two simple points for you this morning, and so we're going to begin straight away. The first of which is this, God's love and grace. God's love and grace. If you look again at chapter 3, verse 1 with me, it reads like this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Again, God's love and grace. First of all, I want you to note what John says in verse 1. Verse 1 literally is translated like this, look at the sort of love the Father has given to us. Look at the sort of love the Father has given to us, namely that we should be called the children of God. And John confidently says after that, and so we are. Now that first phrase, see what kind is a phrase that's, translation, that's translating a word that was used to refer of something or someone from another country, foreign, unusual, or strange. In other words, unexpected. John is saying, see this amazing thing. See this unusual thing, this unexpected thing. In other words, how unusual is it? that we should be called the children of God. But church, there are also a few things that we need to discuss in this incredible acknowledgement, this groundbreaking statement, and I want to focus on some of the things that are being said. First, I want you to note that we learn by implication, this love that is so amazing and unexpected that makes foreigners the children of God This love isn't earned or achieved. That's the first thing I want you to note. This love is not earned or achieved. In other words, God's love isn't owed to us. Amen? God's love is not something that we deserve. Amen? John is saying that we cannot earn God's love. Amen? Okay. John says, see what kind of love the Father has, what? Given to us. Did you get that? Given to us. 
The implication here, church, is that God is gracious. You know what grace is? Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. In other words, all of the riches and blessings that we have in God are found in Christ and nowhere else. We can't earn them. We don't deserve them. And what is afforded to us from the Father to us is afforded to us by virtue of the fact that we have faith in Jesus. That's what it means. God's love is available to us by virtue of the fact that he's gracious and that grace is found in Jesus Christ. John Stott comments on this verse saying this, quote, we are called the children of God. God gives us this privileged designation only because that is what we are by his grace. Whatever other people may think or say, how good is that? I've been called a few names. You've been called a name or two maybe in your life? Doesn't matter what people call us, Tom. Thank you for being at church today. It doesn't matter what other people call us. John Stott is saying what matters is what John says. And what John says is that the Father calls us something more important. By his grace and in his love, he calls us what? His children. And you can bump into somebody here or there or have a particular view or perspective on life that leads other people to feel like they are entitled to call you a name. Leave it alone. God says in Christ, you're his child. That's what he's called you. Second, I want you to note that there is redemption in God's love. The second thing I want you to note is that there is redemption in God's love. That we should be called the children of God, and so we are, John says. Now, John has already gone over the doctrine of sin. We've talked about that through the first and second chapters. John said things like, we are all sinners, but if we confess our sins, the Father is righteous and just to forgive us our sins. Amen? You remember that? But John continues to say, if somebody says they don't have sin, then they are liars. They're lying and they're not practicing the truth because everyone is a sinner. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then the blood of his son cleanses us of sin. And if we confess our sins, he's righteous and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. That's an important section because John is not saying that we're perfect. Did you hear me there? You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. But we are forgiven if we are in Christ because in God's love, there is redemption. And so although we're all sinners or liars, one or the other, there is no middle ground in John's eyes. There is also redemption to be found in the Father's love in Jesus Christ. Here John says again, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we... That we, this is kind of what he's saying, that we of all people, the sinners that we are, that we should be called 
the children of God. That's what John is saying. I know I'm inserting some stuff there, but that's what he's saying. John is speaking to me. He's saying, Joe, look at the love of the Father. And I say, what do you mean by the love of the Father? He says that he calls you, you of all people, his son. To which I have to say, amen. John, you're right. I see the redemption and the amazing love of God. Not that I've earned it, not that I can achieve it, but that he has given it to us by his grace, and in it, redemption is found. Church, God's love is redemptive. It redeems the lost, it reclaims the broken, and it regenerates the dead. That's what we're talking about. Let me talk to you for a moment about God's love and grace. God's love exists in that place where our rebellion and the forgiveness of Christ by faith collide. Our our rebellion and our faith in Christ come together, and God's love is there, sanctifying that process and making it meaningful. There are a few qualities of God's love that I think are important to note. So I want to mention these to you because as we move forward through our conversation covering God's love, we have to dismiss any inkling of our understanding of God's love if we have received that inkling from the world because the world has no idea what love is. Let's get our definition of love from the inspired and inerrant word of God. Amen? Amen. First of all, I want you to note something this morning. God's love is holy. God's love is holy. This is an important point for us to learn and understand. The attributes of God aren't conflicted or incompatible. You see, we can't miss or neglect this fact. God's love does not approve of sin while it receives sinners. Because while God is loving, he will never compromise his holiness. Therefore, God's love is holy love. It doesn't tolerate unrighteousness, sin, or evil. As Paul so poetically put it, In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 6, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. Secondly, God's love is eternal. We've already been taught by John that the promise of the Father to us in the gospel is eternal life. Chapter 2, verse 25 John says, and this is the promise we have received from the Father, namely, eternal life. What kind of life? Eternal life. Now, once you are in the love of God, church, once you are in the love that is found exclusively in Jesus Christ, you are forever in the love of God. There is no dislocating eternal life from the love of God. There is no dislocating God's affection for his children. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39 say this beautiful, beautiful statement. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, 
nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's so good, I'm going to read it again. Paul says, Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, I am sure. I think the King James says, I am confident of this very thing. Neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, if you want to find the love of God, look no further than in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have a lot of people talking about the love of God who know little or nothing of Jesus. There is no such thing. The love of God is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. You don't have to search for it on the highest mountains, amen? You don't have to look for it in the depths of the seas. You don't have to look for God's love in others, and you certainly won't find it in yourselves. Church, the amazing doctrine of the love of God is just that. Amazing. In part, that it's not hard to find. It is found in the exclusive and singular person of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And finally, God's love is not only holy and eternal, it's also transformational. God's love is also transformational. If you look at chapter 3, verse 3, look at this phrase that John says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, if you are a child of God, God is your father, Jesus is your savior, you're in the family of God, now that love that you have experienced and that exists with you, the holy and eternal love of God, it changes your life. It changes your thinking. It changes your attitude. It changes your perspective. To such an extent, John says that if you have that hope, if you thus hope in him like that, well, then your life changes. You purify yourself as he is pure. There's an expectation on the part of the apostles because there is an expectation on the part of God that those who are his people would live and look like him. Amen? This leads to our next and final point, and that is this. God's love and identity. God's love and identity. Look back at the text, if you would, for me. Let's begin this second and final point with this verse. It says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. That's what I want you to focus on just for a moment. The reason why the world does not know us is because it does not know him. This shouldn't come as a surprise to us since we know the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
all of which portray to us the birth, life, and ministry, death, and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. When we read the stories that have been recorded for our learning and for our loving, we read the rebellious attitude that many people had toward Jesus. In chapter 1 of John's gospel, he says, Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And so the gospels contain teachings for disciples like you and me. And those teachings say things like this. Our Lord was not accepted by the world, and neither will we be accepted by the world. We might be tolerated, we might be considered, but we will never be accepted. Because by virtue of Christ's teaching and Christ's work, we stand opposed to the world and its philosophy. And so Jesus says in John's Gospel, chapter 16, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So the world doesn't know us because the world doesn't know him. And because the world doesn't know him, the world does not know God. Now they might use the word God, but they don't know God, the biblical God, the Father of our Savior, Jesus For me, the problem isn't whether or not Christians will be liked by the world. For me, the real problem is that so many Christians are heartbroken by the fact that the world doesn't like them. Doesn't surprise me when the world doesn't like Christians. What surprises me when the Christians are heartbroken by the fact that the world doesn't like them, accept them. They want to be liked by the world. They want to be liked by the systems that are anti-God and anti-Christ. And as a result, some Christians are willing to trade principles for popularity. Some Christians are willing to trade convictions for acclaim. Some Christians are willing to trade their heavenly faith for earthly friendships. May we never do that here at First Baptist Color Ridge. If we are in Christ then we are God's children. And if we are God's children, we will forever be opposed to the world and its systems. And the world will forever be opposed to us. That is a fact. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. But what does it mean really to be God's children? Let me share a few of these thoughts with you. First, It means that we are the recipients of a special electing love. It means that we are the recipients of a special electing love. Notice what John says here. This is not a conversation in general about the world. 
John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to whom? I'll give you a second to get back there. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to whom? Us! Not the world. Us. That who should be called the children of God? We should be called the children of God. We so often dilute the special electing love of God and make it to to no consequence or significance at all because we get hooked on this idea that God loves the world. And that's not wrong. But the love of God for the world and the love of God for his children are not the same thing. Theologian Louis Burkhoff writes this, at the same time he loves believers with a special love, since he contemplates them as his special children in Christ. This fact shouldn't surprise us, church, although we might be a little shaken by it because we talk about God's love so generally that when we talk about his love specifically, it almost makes us a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? But it really shouldn't be surprising to us in that regard because We do this in our very own lives. Like there are kids here, Cass, Kai. I love these kids, but not like Hannah and Sarah. (laughs) It's different. Because they're not mine. They're mine. Does God love the world? Of course God loves the world. The scripture tells us this on a regular basis. But what is John saying? John is saying, they're not the children of God. We are. Church, we are the recipients of a special electing love. And God's word goes out to all the world. Believe and you will be saved. And until we have faith in Christ and we are lost to saved, we are not the children of God. We may be his creation, but we are not his children. And you might say, Joe, that's you. That's not God. Well, you'd be wrong because... Right here in my Bible, the holy word of God, the inerrant, inspired word of God, it teaches us by the apostle John that God's children have a special place with him. We are the children of God. He's speaking to the church. And he excludes the world from that fallen. He excludes the world, that fallen and lost aspect of creation. To the extent that he even says, the world doesn't know you. Because it doesn't know him. Second, I want you to see this as well, that what it means to be a a child of God, it means that we are to be holy. Not only that we're the recipients of God's special electing love, but that we're also supposed to be holy. Subsequently, John says something about what this love and being in the family of God implies. And with no surprise, the apostles and the prophets regularly remind God's people that they must reflect his glory, reveal his nature, and represent his principles and his statutes in their marriage, in their workplace, in their friendships, etc. In a word, given the context of this talk that we're going through today, namely that we are the children of God, 
John is saying that we must, as God's children, bear the family resemblance. We've got to live up to our family name, Christian. We should live like him, and we should talk like him, and we should walk like him. We should forgive like him, and we should reconcile like him. We should teach like him, and we should love like him. We should live up to our family name. I wonder when the last time was when someone said to you, you do that just like your father in heaven. I'd do a lot of things like my earthly father. I don't know how many things I'd do like my heavenly father. But that's our goal, church. Not to resemble those that we are in the families of by flesh, but to do things that reflects our heavenly family. Again, John chapter 3, verse 3 says this, Everyone who thus hopes in him. How many people? How many people? Everyone. If you are a member of the family of God, you fall under this title of everyone. If you are a child of God, you fall under everyone. This is not for the elites. This is not for a particular sect of Christians. And you're like, those are the Trojan Christians. Those are the Spartans. No, this is everybody. Everybody is to purify themselves as he is pure. This is a simple introduction to the study we're going to resume next week. So suffice it to say for this morning, we're going to keep it simple. Listen, here it is. God is pure and holy and righteous, and he expects his children to be the same. The apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, as he who called you is holy, you also must be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Or in John, uh, Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter, sorry, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Matthew 5, verse 48, Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is what? Perfect. Now, some of you may say, we can't be perfect, to which I would say, you are right. But let me help you understand what Jesus is doing here. By exchanging a couple of these words, and I think you're going to see very quickly how ridiculous the thought is. You therefore will be mediocre as your Father in heaven is mediocre. You, therefore, will be okay as your Father in heaven is okay. Well, it doesn't make sense anymore, does it? There is no standard that is acceptable to God in our lives, regardless of whether or not we can achieve it, but perfection. Because God is, help me out, amen. God is perfect. He's not okay. He's not mediocre. Our God is perfect, and he calls his people to perfection, and we know we can't strive. We can strive, but we can't achieve perfection, 
But that's where his grace finds us and his love finds us and the blood of his son Jesus forgives us of our sin. We're not perfect, but no other standard is acceptable to our Father in heaven. We must strive toward perfection because our Father is, help me out, perfect. Church, our Father's love is an amazing love and it comes with expectations of righteousness and holiness and goodness. How can we say that we've been impacted by the doctrine of the amazing love of God in Christ Jesus if we talk the same as we ever did, if we walk the same as we ever did, if we live the same as we ever did, if we think the same as we ever did? In closing... I'm going to borrow from one of my heroes in the Christian faith, the Apostle Paul. We've already quoted him in the book of Romans, and that went over fairly well. Amen? Now I want to go to Galatians, and it's going to come up on the screen, so if you'd like to make a note, that's fine. If you want to turn in your Bible and make a note of it there in your Bible, then you can do that as well, but this is a verse you need. This is a verse you need to tuck away. He, like John, was simply astounded at the doctrine of the amazing love of God in Christ Jesus. And he once wrote these words, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. And the Son of God, get this, who what? who loved me and gave himself for me. If you're sitting in the family of God today, whether here in person or online, if you're sitting in the family of God today, the I in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, is you. I've been crucified with Christ. But I live. But it's not me that lives. It's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live for my Savior who loved me. Loved me so much that he gave himself for me. Church, we have a lot of conversations about a lot of different things under the heading of our beloved faith, Christianity. But may we never have a debate about the love of God for his people. Jesus loves you and gave himself for you.